Welcome to Level Up, a FEMA audio project for practitioners, where communities share their stories and expertise about building resilience and reducing risk from a disaster. Cliffsides tumble into the sea. Sandy beaches dwindle year after year. Homes teeter closer to the edge. Anyone who has spent time near the coast has seen the impacts of coastal erosion. Sea level rise and other impacts of climate change are only making these coastal hazards worse. And island communities are particularly hard hit. On the island of Kauai, in Hawaii, 71% of the coastlines are eroding. In this episode, we will learn how the county of Kauai passed one of the strongest setback requirements in the country to prepare for and respond to these hazards. What is a coastal setback? It is how far a structure must be placed behind a baseline, such as a high tide line. Local governments often use setbacks to prevent further development in coastal areas prone to flooding and erosion. This protects both people and ecosystems. This episode will look at the 2008 Kauai Setback Ordinance and how it fits into broader coastal climate adaptation strategies. First, we'll hear from Kaina Hull, the planning director for the county of Kauai, who is leading the setback effort on the island. We will also talk with Katie Spitalieri, former senior associate and attorney with the Georgetown Climate Center, to learn more about coastal resilience strategies like setbacks. Here is our interviewer, Emily Breen, a community planner for FEMA Region 9, and Kaina Hull. This episode was recorded in July 2022. Can you tell us a little bit about what climate change impacts is Kauai facing now and what impacts are expected in the future? Definitely. Like the rest of the globe, we're experiencing climate change. It's not projected to happen, right? It's, it's happening today. And so everything from sea level rise, and we're projected to have 3.2 feet of sea level rise by the end of the century, if not sooner, which will have various impacts on coastal flooding and coastal erosion. We definitely are in, experiencing increased intensity and frequency of storms, as well as certain patterns of drought. But with those storms, the added component of precipitation events. Can you tell us about the 2008 setback bill? Yeah, definitely. Um, Kauai has a shoreline setback ordinance that is arguably one of the most progressive shoreline setback ordinances in the country. It is a erosion-based setback in that it has a formula as far as how far you have to set back structures from the coastline. Kauai has the most sandy beaches. We have the highest rate of sandy beaches in the state of Hawaii. And that's just given the age of our island compared to other islands. Um, being older, we have that geomorphology. And so what we did with the erosion-based setback is we looked at historically what are the erosion rates for all of these erodible shorelines to determine how far we should set back the built environment. And so that equation ultimately is 70 multiplied by the erosion rate plus 40 plus 20. And to kind of break that up, 70 is the anticipated lifespan of a single family dwelling. 70 years is that lifespan expected. You multiply that by the erosion rate. And so if you have one foot of erosion occurring on your fronting beach, you would multiply 70 times one foot because in 70 years with erosion, then 70 feet inland is where that ocean is going to be. 
and then we add another 40 feet as the minimum setback established for the state of Hawaii for a buffer. And then we add another 20 feet to allow for further water coming as a result of sea level rise. And so that will get you a setback of 130 feet. So no structural developments will be allowed on that property um, within 130 feet of the shoreline. So the setback does two things in particular. It protects proposed structures from the coastal erosion and its processes. So make sure that that structure, its owners, its inhabitants are all protected from the coastal erosion process happening in front of their properties. But on the flip side, it also protects the public because the history of development here in Hawaii, particularly coastal development, of putting a structure so close to the shoreline that eventually the waves are lapping at that structure's foundations. The response historically has been to put a seawall in front of that structure. Just protect and preserve that structure in place so the ocean doesn't take it away. But when that seawall goes in, the sand never comes back. As shorelines are allowed to move and migrate inland when they have erosion going on, the sand itself marches inland and the beach is there. Um, once you put that seawall in, that beach is not coming back. And, and in fact, it will generally create scarping, which will create further erosion issues on other beaches. So it's making sure that development doesn't happen in a manner where the state of Hawaii or the counties will be faced with lawsuits and pressures to put seawalls in and essentially take and deprive the public of that coastal beach space. So it also preserves that particular area as well. Can you speak to how you harness the community and political support and who you collaborated with to, to, to make the ordinance a reality? Yeah, definitely. I don't want to say Kauai is necessarily at the forefront of resiliency planning for the state of Hawaii. I wouldn't try to label it as such, but Kauai as a community has experienced and has in its collective memory of people definitely alive and many of them still young today of not just one, but two devastating hurricanes on the island. We've also seen a fair amount of the impact of the ocean on erodible shorelines by nature of us having more sandy beaches than the rest of the state. And so looking at how we develop along our coastline, I think is constantly on people's minds. And so being able to march or work a, a relatively robust shoreline setback ordinance through the political process, it was not easy, but I think it was very doable given our environment and the impacts that we've had over the past few decades, if you will. So the ordinance itself, was put together and worked on by essentially what was a task force. One of the council members at the time who was focusing on this piece of legislation put the task force together and it was comprised of planners like myself, coastal engineers, well, also several attorneys and coastal advocates. And then you also had you know, land use rights, attorneys and interest groups in that task force as well. So you had a broad spectrum from coastal advocacy groups on one end to hardcore, don't tread on me, property rights attorneys on the other end. And we were at council for about a year and a half um, with the bill constantly getting deferred as the task force worked through the various issues for the shoreline setback ordinance. And, you know, sometimes it did feel like, like we were moving nowhere and we just stared at each other and sometimes screamed at each other until blood came pouring out of our ears. But collectively we, 
eventually we were able to craft something that we unanimously supported. And that's, I think, all the interests were somewhat represented in that process. And then finally with the action by the council at the, the various hearings that they had. That sounds like a great story of compromise. Um, <laughs> and really a lot of time and effort to bring those two groups together to something they could all live with. That's awesome. So how will we know if the setback ordinance actually helps improve coastal resilience? Does it prevent structural damage to properties? Kaina explains that the answer is not so clear-cut. In the meantime, the county continues to propose new ways to protect its community, especially as it relates to sea level rise. As far as how we've fared, it's going to be hard to say because when you're talking about setbacks and land development patterns, we're not going to really know until 40, 50 years after a policy of this nature has been adopted whether or not it was useful in protecting those structures that are being built today and those coastlines that are potentially going to be impacted. So I can say the jury's out. We'll just be watching. We'll, we'll let you know in 40 years. <laughs> but aside from that, though, I can say that for the most part, the real estate industry, the construction industry has become accustomed to this rather robust setback here on the island of Kauai. And understanding that there are some areas where trying to get closer to the shoreline is just not going to happen. When the bill was first passed, there was a considerable amount of pushback from individual property owners that were trying to construct development closer to the shoreline. There was a lot of pushback, quite honestly, from those developers. And I can say, as years have gone by since that ordinance was adopted back in 2008, it's now almost, not totally, but almost um, just the accepted norm of when developers come here, or even individual property owners at the granular level that are just doing single-family dwellings, understanding the process and the setbacks that are going to be placed upon their development. So looking ahead, looking to the future, what is next to further support coastal resilience on Kauai? The state of Hawaii actually has commissioned a series of studies and mapping projects that do model the impacts of sea level rise with the basis that 3.2 feet of sea level rise is anticipated within this century. We have that data. It's on what's called the Hawaii Sea Level Rise Viewer that was actually adopted by the State of Hawaii's Climate Change Commission and is actually mandated to be utilized in coastal review of properties. The state doesn't have specific hardcore regulations around those impacts, but you at least need to account for it in the review of, of permit applications. We'd look at the coastal erosion data that is projected to happen with 3.2 feet of sea level rise and felt that the data wasn't quite there to set up a setback or a regulatory regime that was going to deny developments in the zone. The vast majority of that projected erosion line from 3.2 feet of sea level rise is actually accounted for in our shoreline setback ordinance. But when we look at the other data points in the Hawaii sea level rise viewer, the other two hazards are passive flooding and high wave run up. With 3.2 feet of sea level rise, higher tides, of course, where is the passive flooding going to increase and project to occur, as well as high wave um, events that will happen annually as the sea level rises, how much further inland are those hazards going to go? And of course, these aren't being captured by FEMA's BFE and flood insurance rate program because it's not historical. It's based off of projections of sea level rise. And so looking at those two hazards, knowing unlike erosion, that those hazards are going to be temporal in nature and that the water will come and the water will, will eventually leave. Yes, there's to say, it's not a good idea to build in these areas, 
But if you are gonna build in these areas, is there a way that we can mitigate that water? We've actually proposed a sea level rise district. And so our proposed sea level rise zoning district is essentially the areas that are projected to have passive flooding and highway run-up impacts in the sea level rise viewer. We are proposing that that itself is a district and that when proposing development in that district, you will need to elevate the structure for non-habitable structures, at least one feet above that sea level rise elevation, and for habitable structures, two feet above that sea level rise elevation. Wow, that's impressive and very forward-looking. Since recording with Kaina, on October 14th, 2022, the county's sea level rise ordinance was adopted and signed into law. Kauai's coastal setback policy is just one example of a coastal climate adaptation response. It fits under a term called managed retreat. Managed retreat is a coordinated process to reduce risk. Its goal is to transition and relocate people, buildings, and ecosystems out of vulnerable coastal areas before a disaster. Katie Spitalieri explains that communities can draw from a range of responses, depending on their reality on the ground. The first one of those responses is called a protection response. And protection responses is really this idea of keeping the water out using structures like seawalls, hard armoring structures, or levees to keep water back and allow development and the environment and people to stay in place by sort of removing the flooding threat by keeping it on the other side of that structure. The second main coastal adaptation and resilience response that coastal communities would consider and have considered are called accommodation approaches. And this is affectionately termed living with water. So generally structures and people in the environment once again stay in place, uh, but they're often adapted to sort of, as like I say, acknowledge and sort of live with this increasing flooding threat that they may be facing. So in the accommodation range of responses, structures or infrastructure could be elevated above sort of base flood levels that they might be facing. So that's where you'll often see pictures of homes on stilts, or maybe they have no first floor and have a really long staircase leading up to someone's first floor and porch. And then the third main set of responses that we're talking about today is often called managed retreat or relocation. And it can also go by other names, but for purposes today, we're going to just use managed retreat as a shorthand. And this is the idea of what many call getting out of the water's way. So through using different legal and policy tools, one of which we'll talk about today is a setback, either prohibiting or discouraging development from being in vulnerable locations that are threatened by severe flood risk and doing the same for infrastructure and then working to help and facilitate voluntary transitions for people and ecosystems to higher ground to again get out of the water's way. Traditionally, while all three of these options are on the table, most people have looked at protection and accommodation approaches to the exclusion of managed retreat. And from a layman's perspective, that makes a lot of sense. If you're talking about people leaving their homes, the environment getting swallowed by water, these are gonna be very difficult and challenging conversations to have, If you're, especially if you're the person who's having to make them or the person being affected by them. However, as we talked about, as climate change increases in frequency and intensity, bringing more and different types of flooding to communities we're increasingly seeing managed retreat come up as an option in more tables and more communities. Kaina's advice to local governments looking to pass a setback ordinance? In things like the shoreline setback ordinance, you are taking away property rights. And having a very firm and strong legal 
component and having the quite honestly the attorneys in the room with you while you're crafting these policies is absolutely necessary because the ordinance we have does have a constitutional relief valve if you will there is a variance process embedded within the ordinance that is particularly thorough i'll say environmental studies need to be done a minimum billable footprint has to be established but those studies can take up to three to five years to have happen but also in 14 years the bill has never been challenged i'm not saying it won't ever be challenged ultimately ordinances and policies like these do get challenged but with the legal analysis and legwork that went into the bill we're very certain it will stand any challenges speaking of lawyers here's katie As a lawyer, I can never have only one piece of advice, so I have two pieces of advice for local policymakers or communities that are considering setbacks as a potential managed retreat tool or strategy in their communities. The first is bringing managed retreat tools like setbacks to the table at the outset of coastal adaptation and resilience decision-making processes. So putting those on par with the protection and accommodation approaches to avoid potentially having foregone options later. And I think also just even talking about something with as challenging and complex as managed retreat helps to sort of have a normalizing or mainstreaming effect. Again, it's not to say that by using the term managed retreat that everybody is going to move from your island or from your county and go to live in the Midwest, but it just presents people with an option that they may consider. And I think the second takeaway is really pursuing collaborative and comprehensive decision-making processes that look at not only who you give a seat to at the table and how you can enable them to meaningfully and authentically participate. And that's looking at who needs to be at the table across different levels of government, across different agencies in government, and looking at community residents and other stakeholder groups outside government, but also looking at the temporal or nature or time involved in these processes, thinking about when do you start them and how long do they consider, and then considering these discussions in terms of updates, monitoring, and evaluation, even after they're technically implemented, to ensure that they're achieving the intended outcomes that governments and communities set for these decisions. Climate change is making setbacks and managed retreat more relevant to coastal communities. As it does, we need to keep an eye on what we're trying to protect. And then on sort of a more personal note, why is this work important to you? Well, it's our communities, right? The root of what we're trying to do after working for several years in planning and, and then becoming the administrator for the planning department, recognizing that that beach and that coastline need to be protected so that their natural dynamic and organic processes can continue to occur has become that much more important, I think, in the work that I do. because. That coastline, aside from protecting the structure, that coastline is where families recreate. It's where practitioners go to pick things like limukohu. It's where fishermen and divers put food on their table. It's just such an ingrained part of our cultural and even modern identity here in Hawaii that preserving or making sure that that area, that space will continue on beyond my time here at the department, my children's time, so on and forth, ensuring that 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 space is still there as it moves inward or moves outward. That's where it gets, you know, you can really get personally invested. This episode of Level Up was produced by FEMA Region 9's Mitigation Division and Resilience Action Partners. It was made available to you through a partnership with the Georgetown Climate Center. 
The Georgetown Climate Center serves as a resource to state and local governments, working to cut carbon pollution and adapt to climate change impacts. As part of this work, GCC has developed the Managed Retreat Toolkit, a resource that brings to life different legal and policy approaches, best in emerging practices and case studies. To support peer learning and decision-making around managed retreat and climate adaptation. In it, readers can learn about the spectrum of planning, regulatory acquisition and market-based tools, including coastal setbacks that might suit their community's needs. You can find the Managed Retreat Toolkit at georgetownclimate.org. To learn more about the topics and programs mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes.